0: At Sax.com.
1: What a great way to start with sirens! I love this. Welcome to the Art of History podcast. I am your intrepid art history degree holding host, Amanda Matta. And this week's episode, I think, is very thematically uh, timely, as it is Thanksgiving week in the U.S. I almost said the U.K. In the U.S., and many of us are returning to our family homesteads in the next few days as you're listening to this, where we will undoubtedly eat Too much food and argue a little too much with our relatives. And I thought this painting would be the perfect companion piece to this week's festivities. Before we dive into the artwork that is going to tell us that familial strife story from history today, this is your cursory reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen. I truly appreciate it, and it helps new listeners join us, so thank you in advance. And if this is your first time listening, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what today's is going to be in just a moment. I will also be posting the artwork and some supplemental images over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast, so I would recommend pulling that up and just having it available if possible while you listen. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. I am just about to cross 3,000 followers on the Instagram. And I also have a giveaway going on right now. You can win a copy of a Tudor planner that I have for myself. I absolutely love. And I snagged an extra copy of to send to a listener. So check out the pinned post on the Instagram. Again, that's Art of History Podcast if you would like to enter. That is going to be closing on December 5th of 2022, so if you're listening in the future, I apologize. Um, They are available every year on Indiegogo, and I highly recommend getting one for yourself. I think that is all of the housekeeping for this episode, so without further ado, let's dive into the reason we're here, the art. We are traveling back in time to the mid-18th century today. No, I'm sorry the mid-19th century, the 1800s today, where the realist movement was emerging in France as a reaction against the outdated strictures of all that stuffy, academic, formulaic art that had dominated the scene for centuries at this point. Spearheaded in France by artists like Gustave Courbet and Jean-Francois Millet, the realist movement signaled a definitive break from the artistic traditions of the past. Realist paintings, of course, were protested by the French Salon, the state-sponsored art exhibition that resided in Paris, because these paintings flouted the traditional academic practice that taught artists how to paint correctly. Scenes of rural life, for example, which kind of dominated in realist art, were expected to be classically small and picturesque, instilling the viewer with a sense of escapism, These works, however, when the realists painted them, were large on a scale that was normally reserved for major historical themes or religious subjects. Even worse, these works focused on the hardship of the modern working condition, a topic that smacked dangerously of socialist politics to the conservative art critics of the day. Also criticized were the bodies that were being painted by the realists. Nude figures were not glamorized in this artistic movement, but were instead portrayed with rolls of fat... ew, who has those? Me, I have those. (laughs) And were depicted at unflattering angles. Critics were more used to the idealized forms of academic art, where the body is smooth and posed, you know, beautifully all the time. They saw the realist movement as a deliberate quest for ugliness. Over in Russia, where we will be spending the rest of this episode today, the baton of naturalism was taken up by an association of exhibiting artists known as the Wanderers or the Itinerants. Their works constituted a penetrating study of Russian society. Particularly uncompromising was their portrayal of labor, their depiction of labor practices in Russia, although they also produced, you know, these atmospheric landscapes and scenes of daily life that were a little more palatable to the contemporary viewer. The wanderers sought not only to break away from traditional artistic methods, but they also wanted to subvert the way in which art was experienced. By depicting scenes from ordinary life and holding exhibitions in the provinces, they aimed to enlighten and make art more accessible to the masses, to the common man. This is part of the reason that they were called the Wanderers. They traveled around Russia showing their paintings. Arguably the most famous of the Wanderers was an artist by the name of Ilya Yefimovich Repin, who was born in Chihuiv in what is now Ukraine in 1844 to a peasant family. He got some early artistic training with a local religious icon painter before moving to St. Petersburg in 1864 to study at the Imperial Academy of Fine Arts. He actually failed at his first attempt to enter the academy there, but he remained in the city anyway and studied academic drawing techniques, audited courses, and won his first artistic prizes in 1869 and 1871. In 1872, he completed his first masterpiece, The Boatmen or the Bargemen on the Volga. This work depicts 11 men physically dragging a boat across the banks of the Volga River, and it was completed on a commission from the Grand Duke Vladimir Alexandrovich. He had been so impressed just by drawings that Repin had made while on a trip down the Volga that he awarded him the commission for a large-scale painting on the same subject. The finished piece, which I have over on the Instagram, starkly shows the harsh working conditions that these men were enduring. They appear on the brink of collapse, dressed in rags and bound with leather harnesses, tying them to the barge. Just one of the men, highlighted through his lighter clothing in the center of the group, seems about to cast off the straps that bind him to the ship. In the distance behind this barge is a tiny steam-powered boat. You can barely make it out in the canvas. Perhaps this is a suggestion that the back-breaking labor that we're seeing from the barge haulers (laughs) is no longer necessary in the industrial age. All in all, the piece can be read as a condemnation of inhumane labor as a source of profit. Ironically, because of that point, the Grand Duke purchased the final piece and sent it to be exhibited widely throughout Europe as a landmark of Russian realist painting. Although perhaps it's not so ironic after all, as the Grand Duke's father, Tsar Alexander II, was known as Alexander the Liberator for his greatest achievement, which was emancipating Russia's serfs. Serfdom had existed in some form in Russia as far back as the 12th century. The serfs were people who were basically tied to the land on which they had been born. They could be physically sold along with the land. And while Peter the Great ended slavery in Russia in the 1720s, it took until Alexander II in 1861 to put an end to the historic practice of serfdom, which was really the basis for class relations between the peasants and the nobles in Russia. Repin was surely aware of the poverty and the hardship that still dominated rural life after serfdom had been ended, both from his upbringing and his later travels as an adult. And even though the painting of the Boatmen on the Volga still bears some hallmarks of academic drawing, it has been described as, quote, perhaps the most famous painting of the Wanderers' movement for its unflinching portrayal of back-breaking labor. This painting defined Ilya Repin as a serious painter and one concerned with depicting realism through his work. The success of the painting also won him a grant from the Academy of Fine Arts that allowed him to spend several years touring around Western Europe. After making stops in Austria and Italy, he rented an apartment in Paris for two years and was there in 1874 when the first Impressionist exhibition was held. Though Repin admired some Impressionist techniques and liked the liberty of what he called their infantile truthfulness, he felt that their work lacked moral or social purpose. It lacked substance, which would become a key factor in his own art. Now, he didn't necessarily go so far as the Wanderers did in their ideology. They believed that art should push forth humanistic causes and kind of serve the common man above all else. Reppin sympathized with those concerns, but he didn't go as far as the Wanderers did. They kind of completely rejected the academic world. I think in general, Reppin was just a little bit more realistic about what it took to create good art and also what it meant to be creating it as a person who had been born out of the peasant class. He wrote in an 1872 letter, Now it is the peasant who is the judge, and so it is necessary to represent his interests. That is just the thing for me, since I am myself, as you know, a peasant, the son of a retired soldier who served 27 hard years in Nicholas I's army. He would become famous for his depictions of Russian history, and his realist style paved the way for the socialist realism of the Soviet era a century later. His works brought a modern, socially charged angle to representations of historical subjects, which was the favorite subject of academic painters. A perfect example of this was in his 1888 painting, Saint Nicholas of Myra delivering three unjustly condemned men from death. Repin was a supporter of a campaign to abolish the death penalty in Russia at the time, and showing the saint saving these condemned men was surely connected to that. He also produced portraits of many prominent Russians, including influential literary and artistic figures, many of these his friends. These included Leo Tolstoy, Modest Mussorgsky. Pavel Tretyakov, and Mikhail Glinka. Also, of course, I have to say this in every episode that's not predominantly English names. Uh, My Russian pronunciation, it's getting there. It's not amazing, so I do apologize in advance for any of my Russian-speaking listeners. Now, Ilya Repin suffered one major setback on his road to being enshrined in art history, and this happened in 1885 when he had completed a history portrait depicting Russia's first czar, Ivan the Terrible. This painting caused such a scandal that it was removed from exhibition and Russians were banned from viewing it. This is the painting that we are going to focus on today. I do, of course, have it on the Instagram for you, and if you are Googling it, you will want to Google Ivan the Terrible and his son, Ivan. Now, far from being a heartwarming portrayal, maybe a double portrait of a father and his beloved son, this is a painting where Ivan the Terrible has just killed his son. Now, I I don't really think there's any point in beating around the bush here because it's... This painting is dominated by the bleeding and, I think, pretty obviously dying body of the Sarevich, Ivan Ivanovich, son of Ivan the Terrible. But the focus of the viewer isn't really on the dying man's body. It's on the facial expression of the father. Ivan the Terrible has this absolutely haunted, ghastly look on his face, and I think the immediate impression is that this is his oh shit moment, you know, his oh shit, what just happened? Or his oh shit, what did I do moment? If you can peel your eyes away from that facial expression for just a moment, let's look at the rest of the canvas before we kind of get sucked into the drama behind the people here. The sense of place, the setting for this painting relies heavily on the objects and pieces of furniture that are kind of scattered around the main characters. You have these crumpled, red, sumptuous carpets all over the floor, a discarded scepter, an overturned throne, and a tossed ornamental cushion. Behind the figures, other pieces of interior decoration, such as a large stove, a portrait, candlesticks, and a mirror hanging on the wall, as well as an ornate chest, are kind of less discernible. They're separated from the foreground by almost kind of a haze, like when sunlight is filtering through a smoky room. The back wall of the room is covered with a red and black diamond pattern. At the top left is a narrow inset window, letting just just some white light stream in. The painting actually depicts one of the rooms of the Chambers of the Romanov boyars from the 17th century, while the accessories, throne, mirror, and the kaftan of the dying man were all painted at the Kremlin armory. That ornate chest is part of the collection of the Rumyantsev Palace Museum. So there's a lot of attention to detail being paid, not just in depicting these figures, but in setting the scene. So that's what I feel like I should do as well, before we get sucked into that absolutely harrowing facial expression on the face of the first Tsar of Russia. The man who would become known to history as Ivan the Terrible was born in 1530 as Ivan Vasilievich. That Russian second name, the patronymic, tells us that he was the son of Grand Prince Vasily III of Moscow, the 19th ruler of the Rurik dynasty. His son and heir was born to his second wife, Elena Glinskaya. You might hear me refer to this dynasty, this family line, as the Rurik dynasty or the Muscovite dynasty. And that's because baby Ivan was going to be proclaimed his father's successor as Grand Prince of Moscow, the area that would later become the Tsardom of Russia, when he was just three years old and his father died. As he was just three years old at the time he ascended to this throne, his mother Elena ruled in Ivan's name, that is, until her own untimely death, allegedly by poison, in 1538. She had ruled as a regent with such a tight fist that before this untimely death, a rebellion had been launched against her. Ivan IV, as he was now known, would continue to witness court intrigues like this as rival courtiers and members of Russia's elite jockeyed for power around him for 10 years until he reached his majority. He grew out of this traumatizing childhood to be, quote, as magnetic, dynamic, and imaginative as he was volatile and unpredictable, according to British historian Simon Montefiore, who is the author of The Romanovs. Now, Ivan was not a Romanov, but his rule, in some ways, paved the way for their dynastic rise to power. So we'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to it later. In January 1547, when Ivan was 16, a group of reformers known as the Chosen Council declared him Tsar, or Emperor, of all the Russias. The title of Tsar had been first used by his grandfather, Ivan III, or Ivan the Great, who had claimed the title Grand Prince of all Rus. The term he used for himself was derived from the Latin Caesar and was Russianized into Tsar, meaning Emperor. This means that our Ivan was the first ruler to actually be crowned emperor of all Russia from the outside of his reign, even though people had used the title before him. By February of 1547, Ivan had given Russia its first Tsarina, or Empress, through a ritual search for a bride known as a bride show. This is kind of exactly as it sounds, 500 virgins were summoned from across Russia and were judged for their beauty and suitability to marry the emperor. Ivan's ultimate choice was Anastasia Romanovna, a great-aunt of the boy who would become the first Tsar of the Romanov dynasty, Michael. She would bear Ivan six children, of whom two male heirs survived. They were Ivan and Fyodor. Anastasia was also known for her ability to calm Ivan's quote-unquote manic temperament. At first, Ivan's reign was full of promise. He had sent a message to the world and to Russia that he was now the only supreme ruler of the country, ending infighting between noble families and clans. The new title also painted Ivan as a divine leader appointed to enact God's will on earth, and his will as Tsar was therefore not to be questioned. He embarked on wide-ranging reforms, including setting up a centralized administration and church councils, introducing self-government in rural regions, and instituting tax reforms. Ivan also called the First National Assembly in 1549 and limited the powers of the boyars. These were members of Russia's top echelon of nobility. They came just after the ruling princes in the country's hierarchy. He also brought in European Okay, this says esports in my notes. I don't think it's supposed to be esports, but I can't, I can't tell what word it's actually supposed to be. Um, okay, well, anyway, <laughs> Ivan brought in European merchants, we'll go with merchants, um, to modernize Moscow, and he dispatched envoys to gain control of the rich land of Siberia. In foreign policy terms, Ivan had two main goals at the outset of his reign to resist invasions from the Mongol Empire in the east and to gain access to the Baltic Sea in the west. Ultimately, he had the aim of conquering all remaining independent regions around his empire and creating a larger, more centralized Russia. To this end, he conquered the Tartar Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan, victories which he celebrated by building St. Basil's Cathedral. You know, the one with all of the brightly colored domes that sits in Moscow's Red Square? Yep, that was because of Ivan the Terrible. Legend tells us that Ivan had the architect of St. Basil's Cathedral blinded so that he could never create anything as beautiful again, although this is probably an apocryphal story attached to his um, legacy as a legend because that architect would go on to design several other buildings later in his life. Probably a bit of revisionism to make Ivan's terrible nickname stick a little better. Regardless. These early victories extended his control to the Ural Mountains in the east and the Caspian Sea in the south, which created a buffer zone against possible invasions of Moscow by the Mongols. At the same time though, Ivan launched an unsuccessful campaign to control Livonia, vying for free access to the Baltic Sea and ergo access to sea trade with the rest of Europe. Fighting against Sweden and Poland in this effort from 1558 to 1583 in what is called the Livonian War, ultimately didn't do much except undermine the sanity of the Tsar and the loyalty of his overmighty grandees. He began to become, rightfully in some cases, suspicious of the boyars who were supposed to serve him. In 1560, his wife Anastasia died at the age of 29. Ivan was convinced that she had been poisoned, although it's just as likely that she died of, I mean, any of your run-of-the-mill renaissance diseases, or treatments for that matter. But the damage to Ivan's psyche was already done. Historians point to this moment as the point where his mental health started slipping in earnest. He fell apart emotionally and grew more and more paranoid that the boyars had poisoned his wife, whom he really did seem to love. And, you know, now that he was thinking of it, they probably had a hand in his mother's death all those years ago, too. After facing defeats and becoming more and more deeply suspicious of treason by the Russian boyars, Ivan seized private lands and redistributed some of them among his supporters. The rest became a private portfolio of land, I guess you could say, called the separateness or the oprichnina, a territory separate from the rest of the state and under Ivan's personal control. He also created a personal bodyguard-slash-secret police force who dressed all in black and rode astride black horses. They existed more to crush dissent than to keep the peace. With this group, called the Oprichniki, he withdrew into isolation, left Russia's management to others, and launched what many have called a Reign of Terror. During this seven-year period, roughly, he organized massacres of prominent boyars, perhaps as many as 3,000. During the 1560s and 70s, he remarried perhaps seven more times. Five of his wives were married in quick succession over just nine years. Three of these wives were suspected victims of poisoning, and several were thought to have been murdered on Ivan's orders. In 1570, the year after his second wife died under, what else, suspicious circumstances, he ordered thousands of tortures and executions in the city of Novgorod, decimating its population by, in some estimates, as many as 15,000. This is the time period where Ivan's nickname took root. We know him, of course, as Ivan the Terrible. And yes, to us his actions are just that, terrible. But to a contemporary Russian speaker, the word was actually closer to a more archaic English definition of terrible, meaning inspiring fear or terror, dangerous, powerful, formidable. In general, as an epithet for kings and emperors, the word also could mean courageous, magnificent, magisterial, and keeping enemies in fear, but people in obedience but all of the madness and frenzy that seemed to follow Ivan around would come to a head in 1581 when the episode which Ilya Repin has put to canvas for us took place. I'm going to take a short break, but when we come back we will dive headfirst into the drama, You Have My Word.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe,
1: What do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. And we are back to drop us back into the timeline leading up to the murder, spoiler alert, (laughs) that Ilya Reppin has painted That happened in 1581. Now, the year before, at yet another Russian bride show, 1580, Ivan the Terrible had taken his seventh wife, a woman named Maria Nagaya. She would give him another son named Dmitry in 1582. This was something that Ivan longed for in an effort to secure his dynasty, even though his firstborn son by his first wife, Anastasia, was still alive and well when he remarried. Now, of course, that son was also named Ivan, and now that we're going to be talking about the two of them in pretty quick succession here, I will be referring to him as Ivan Ivanovich (laughs) to differentiate the two. Ivan Ivanovich was not Ivan the Terrible's only adult male heir, but his younger brother Fyodor was considered not competent to rule. We now think that he had possibly a developmental disability. But in a world where a king, even back then, needed an heir and a spare, the future of Ivan IV's legacy rested solely on Ivan Ivanovich. Perhaps it was the drive to create the spare that led to Ivan's somewhat manic approach to remarrying. The younger Ivan was certainly being primed to carry the Tsardom into the future, however. He had accompanied his father on a bonding exercise, you know, as fathers and sons do, to the massacre of Novgorod at the tender age of 15. For five weeks, he and his father would watch the Oprichnikis work there with enthusiasm, by all reports, after which they would retire to the local church to pray. By the time he was 27, Ivan Ivanovich was on his third marriage. His first wife had originally been paraded as an option for his father to marry at a bride show. When she did not fall pregnant with an heir for Ivan Ivanovich as quickly as the Tsar would have liked, she was sent away to a convent. His second wife, the son of a Russian nobleman, met the exact same fate. Now, I will just say it's more than likely that these choices were made by the Tsar, Ivan the Terrible, and not by Ivan Ivanovich, if that makes you feel any better about the fate that those women met. By 1581, Ivan's third wife, Elena Sheremetiva, was finally announced as pregnant. Ivan Ivanovich surely felt that providing the dynasty with another male heir could be a great way to get back in his father's good graces. The pair's relationship had reputedly soured during the Livonian War, as Ivan Ivanovich held the Tsar responsible for certain military failures and demanded control of certain troops to help lift a siege. On November 15th, 1581, the story goes, Ivan the Terrible happened to come face-to-face with his pregnant daughter-in-law, who was wearing only a light shift. Apparently, it was quite a warm day. Basically, she was in the 16th century equivalent of her underwear. Ivan went into a rage, physically assaulting the girl with a blow to the stomach. At that point, she suffered a miscarriage, and Ivan Ivanovich rushed to her side after hearing her screams. The young Tsarevich flew at his father, yelling, You sent my first wife to a convent for no reason. You did the same with my second, and now you strike the third, causing the death of the son she holds in her womb. The Tsar was incandescent with rage at this insolence, and he struck his son in the temple with the pointed scepter or staff he held in his hand. Ivan Ivanovich fell to the ground, blood gushing from the wound. A member of Ivan the Elder's personal guard, who had recently been promoted to the rank of boyar—this was a man named Boris Fyodorovich Gudunov, maybe?—attempted to intervene, but also received physical blows from the Tsar. It was at this point that the Elder Ivan apparently snapped out of his hysteria and saw what he had done he immediately threw himself upon his son, kissing his face and trying to stop the bleeding, whilst repeatedly crying, May I be damned! I've killed my son! I've killed my son! Gudunov rushed to get help for the Tsarevich, who briefly regained consciousness and said, I die as a devoted son and most humble servant. For the next four days, the Tsar prayed incessantly for a miracle, but to no avail. Ivan Ivanovich died on November 19th, 1581. After his death, there was no competent adult male heir left for Russia, only Anastasia's other son, the mentally unfit Fyodor, and the literal baby who would not arrive until 1582, Dmitri. Ivan the Terrible had condemned the nation to chaos and uncertainty through his own moment of anger. When Ivan died in 1584, the crown did indeed pass to Fyodor, and Boris Godunov, the one who had been present at the altercation between Ivan and Ivan, acted as his regent. The baby Dmitri would die at age eight under quote-unquote mysterious circumstances, by all accounts from a knife wound to the throat that was self-sustained during an epileptic fit. I'll leave it to you whether you believe that or not. When Fyodor died childless in 1598, The Muscovite dynasty died with him. Godonov did step in as Tsar, but he launched Russia into the Time of Troubles. This 15-year period would end in 1613, when Mikhail Romanov would be crowned the first Tsar of the Romanov dynasty. But of course, that's a story for another episode. Whew, okay, that was intense. To return to the realm of art history. What was Ilya Repin telling us by painting this harrowing scene almost 300 years after the incident took place? Well, according to Repin, the design and actual painting of the piece were an agonizing process. Quote, I painted in tears. I was tortured. I tormented myself. I corrected again and again what I had painted. I hid it in a sickly disappointment. No longer believing in my strength, I erased what I had painted. I had already erased and I was attacking the canvas again. Every minute was terrible to me. I was disappointed with this painting. I hid it. And she made the same impression on my friends. But something pushed me towards her. And again, I was working on it." So if he hated this painting so much, which I can can relate to, why did he push through? What was he trying to depict? What was he trying to tell his viewer? I think there are many things at play here. But firstly, and mainly, the message that violence solves nothing, and in fact, only creates more problems than it solves. Now, how do I say that with such certainty? Repin was indeed painting almost exactly 300 years after this episode took place, this moment of infanticide by Russia's ruler. But he was also almost definitely reacting to an instance of regicide that would hit much closer to home to contemporary Russian viewers, the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, which took place in March 1881. Alexander II, known universally for his emancipation of the serfs, was killed almost exactly 300 years after Ivan the Terrible killed his own son. The aftermath of the bombing that killed Alexander II saw the perpetrator, whose name I am about to butcher, Ignacy Rynjaviecki, I think that's as close as I'm gonna get, executed alongside other revolutionaries who had helped in the planning and execution. A new era of political repression was ushered in in the wake of these public executions. Repin was present in St. Petersburg for both the Tsar's murder and the execution of the perpetrators. It was probably this experience that got his wheels spinning in contemplation of Russia's bloody history, and the cycle of violence and revenge that seemed to dominate imperial politics and power games as far back as Russia's very first Tsar, and even farther than that, I'm sure. But in depicting such violence on the canvas, I think Repin is also telling viewers something about how that cycle could conceivably come to an end. The moment of realization of horror at his actions that shows on Ivan the Terrible's face is, after all, the focal point of the painting. Historians recorded that Ivan, quote, implored the mercy of God and the forgiveness of his son as he cradled Ivan Ivanovich's limp body. Repin may be reminding us that only Christian love and redemption are the path forward from this kind of regretful action. Because although the painting is sometimes called Ivan the Terrible Kills His Son, Repin did not paint the actual moment in which the Tsar hits the Tsarevich with his staff or his scepter. The work doesn't show us the moment of violence, but the result of it. Ivan the Terrible is holding his son, and more than that, the two figures are kind of intertwined. The gesture in which Ivan the Terrible is embracing and supporting his son by the waist has been called reminiscent of the paintings The Return of the Prodigal Son and David and Jonathan by the Dutch painter Rembrandt, which Repin would have studied and admired since his formative years and are housed in the Hermitage Museum. But early versions of this painting did not show us the aftermath of the violence in quite this way. Modifications to preliminary sketches show Repin gradually separating the violence of the act of killing itself from the consequences of it. In early sketches for the painting, which I will put examples of on the Instagram, the scepter with which Ivan has struck his son's temple is in his hand. In the final painting, it is on the floor in front of them. In an oil sketch made in 1883, The bloodstain lies at the spot where the Tsarevich's head rests on the floor. It is erased in the shadows of the final painting. Similarly, Ivan Ivanovich's dress no longer has a long bloodstain in the final version. The represented moment in the final painting becomes one of remorse, forgiveness, and love. The painting also shows in its center the, quote, reality and irreversibility of the Tsar's act. The blood flows from his son's temple, and the attempts that Ivan the Terrible is making to contain it are hopeless. And, of course, the terror in Ivan the Terrible's eyes as he realizes what he's done is kind of enough to send shivers down the spine of any viewer. I think that's why this painting has endured so much in art history. If the fact that he has just murdered his own son wasn't enough, it is made all the worse by the realization that that son also represented the future of Russia and the continuation of Ivan's dynasty. But then you contrast that with the look on Ivan Ivanovich's face, which is kind of gentle. It's almost as if he is indeed forgiving his father with his tears. There is, of course, a sense of heightened drama in this painting adding to those facial expressions. The pair are depicted in kind of a twilight and appear to be spotlighted in the center of the composition. They stand out from both the foreground of the canvas and the darker background farther back. This is one of Repin's largest works. It is over eight feet long and six and a half feet tall. It's actually comparable in size to his earliest masterpiece, The Barge Haulers on the Volga. The predominant shade in this painting, if you take a step back from your screen or whatever and squint, you'll definitely see what I mean, is red. It has been described as an intense red, a blood red, and a thick and saturated crimson red. And still, there are variants in the shades of red here. The scarlet of the blood flowing from the wound on the Sarevich's temple stands out distinctly from the deeper, more weighty puddle of blood on the red carpet. The carpets themselves are kind of a rusty color, while the patterned walls are more maroon and black. And what you have as a result of this is a discordance. Repin has created a tension across the canvas through all these battling shades of red that resonates with the tragedy depicted in it. Then you have the magnificence of Tsarevich's outfit, his silk kaftan, I believe, that contrasts beautifully with the darkness of Ivan the Terrible's black coat. Repin breaks this combination of blood red, pink, and these dark brown or black tones, with the complementary colours of the green of the Sarjevic's boots, and the deep blue of his trousers. Then there's the white light coming in cold and weak through that narrow window in the upper left, kind of accentuating this tension of colours and further reinforcing the dramatic tension in the scene. I feel like this is the element that lets me, at least, activate another of my senses beyond the visual while taking in the scene. It's kind of hard for me to describe, but that window with what I take to be cold winter light, remember this happened in November, streaming in, makes me feel like this room would be absolutely dead silent with just the sound of the cold Russian wind outside offering any auditory input and sharpening a moment where the action has been cut off so suddenly and the tension is already palpable. I I think it could be comparable to a moment, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but maybe you're a teacher or (laughs) just a loud person and you've yelled something at someone and the room just goes dead quiet. I think it is kind of like that. Now, of course, all of this artistic interpretation is based on the version of Ivan Ivanovich's death that has been told to us across the centuries. It probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you that the rather sensational and appalling version of the tale that's been handed down to us from 1581 may not be the truth. What's known for sure, then? Ivan Ivanovich did die in 1581 in the Alexandrov Kremlin. The actual details of his death are kind of unknown and some would say controversial. If Ivan the Terrible did have a hand in his death, it is just as likely that the moment of violence that arose and left Ivan Ivanovich bleeding on the floor was born from a dynastic disagreement between father and son. It's been suggested that even if the beginning of the confrontation involved Ivan's pregnant wife, The topic may have quickly changed to the Tsar accusing his son of insubordination during the Livonian War. The elder Ivan may have even launched accusations of inciting rebellion, which the younger Ivan, of course, as you would, denied. Others, including Dana Schwartz on a recent episode of the Noble Blood podcast, have pointed out that it would be a bit far-fetched for the pregnant Yelena to have been lounging around in her underwear in Russia in November, as the classic story tells us. Dana Schwartz also noted, I think aptly, that it would have been, quote, unusual for Ivan to rush right past his daughter-in-law's ladies-in-waiting in order to catch her in some scandalous state in the first place. So even though Ivan the Terrible has a terrible history of bad attitudes towards women who were meant to bear children for the Muscovite dynasty, I do think it more likely that a political dispute was the root of any violence that occurred between the Tsar and the Sun. It's possible, even likely, that we will never know without a doubt what caused Ivan Ivanovich's untimely death. And while there are very few primary source documents remaining from Ivan the Terrible's reign, there is evidence to suggest that just a few weeks before this altercation allegedly took place, he was actually sick in bed. So it leaves you to wonder, were those two things, his illness and his death, connected after all? When Ilya Repin's painting of Ivan cradling his dying son was revealed in 1885, it was met with acclaim by his artistic friends but with disdain from the government and the imperial court. A court jurist told the Tsar of his, quote, repulsion and perplexity upon looking at the painting, and showings of it were banned by April 1st of that year, making it the first painting to be censored in the Russian Empire. The ban was, however, lifted by July 1885, and the scandal associated with it was ultimately followed by a series of major successes and new commissions for Repin. In 1894, he was appointed Professor of Historical Painting at the St. Petersburg Academy, after reforms had been instituted there. The Academy, like its French counterpart, was the preeminent art institution in Russia, housing a prestigious collection of artworks and educating Russian artists. Established in 1757, its teaching remained conservative and academically rigid for over a century, and it resisted new trends in art. Repin, with his pretty unique mix of social awareness and classic painting techniques, seemed like a good compromise to move their methods into the future. However, he resigned from the Academy in either 1905 or 1907, following the violent repressions of street demonstrations by the Tsarist government. In 1909, on a commission from the industrialist and collector Stepan... Here's another one. Stepan Ryabushinsky? He painted a second version of Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan, which he called Infanticide. This version is on display at the Voronezh Museum of Fine Arts, while the original remained then and now at the Tretyakov Gallery. Painted 25 years after the first version, this one has Tsar Ivan's face collapsed in grief with his eyes closed, rather than visibly aghast at his own actions. Reppin also added a female character in the background and used highly saturated colors more than in the original painting, taking it in a more, quote, luxuriant direction. On January 16th, 1913, the original painting was vandalized for what would be the first time. A 29-year-old iconoclast slashed the canvas three times with a knife right over the face of Ivan the Terrible. As he did so, he cried out, Blood! Why the blood? Down with the blood! The Tretyakov Gallery's curator, a man named Grigory Krushlov, was apparently so devastated upon learning of the vandalism that he threw himself under a train, distraught at not having better protected it. The painting was restored, with the help of Ilya Repin at this time, to almost its original state. It has remained a source of contention among Russians ever since, as has Ivan the Terrible himself. Both Stalin and Putin would undertake some image rehab on Ivan's behalf, with Stalin even editing history books to be gentler towards Ivan. He sought to have him painted as not a tyrannical, deranged monster, but just as a strong, masculine leader doing what was needed for Russia's sake. For his part, Repin welcomed Russia's February Revolution in 1917, but was, quote, appalled by the violence and warfare that followed in the October Revolution. This is what culminated in the murder of the last of the Romanov rulers, Tsar Nicholas, Empress Alexandra, and their five children. Also in 1917, Repin's home in Kuokola, which sits just 19 miles northwest of St. Petersburg, became part of Finland after that country declared independence from Russia. Repin was thereafter unable to travel to St. Petersburg, even for an exhibition of his own works in 1925. It was there that he died in 1930. In 1948, the city was ceded to the USSR and was renamed Rapino in his honor. His home is now a museum and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. His artwork, showing Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan, has been called one of Russia's most famous and controversial paintings. It was vandalized for the second time in May 2018, when a drunken visitor to the Tretyakov gallery broke its protective glass with a metal bar. The painting itself did suffer serious damage. It was pierced in three places in the middle part of the work, where the figures of Ivan and Ivan are. The gallery did say that the frame was also badly damaged, but by a happy coincidence, the most precious elements of the painting, that showing the figures' faces and hands, were not damaged. According to some Russian media, the vandal said he had attacked the painting because he thought the depiction was inaccurate. Others have said, no, it was just the painting that caught his eye. He received two and a half years behind bars, and the painting remains on display in the Tretyakov Gallery. That is going to be all for me today. Uh, By the time you're listening to this, I will be on my way to my family's house. Um, I'm hoping that nothing of this magnitude happens for any of you or myself between family members this year at Thanksgiving. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really, really does help get the show in front of new listeners. And if you're interested in supporting the show further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash matta of fact that's m-a-t-t-a underscore of underscore fact i post the episodes a day early over there and occasionally some additional supplemental royals content over there as well do not forget of course to follow us on instagram at art of history podcast on tiktok at art of history pod um i would also say i usually say twitter at art historic pod but twitter is dying and (laughs) and i'm not on there much anyway so you can skip that one gotta take this out of my blurb. (laughs) And of course, I continue to make royal history videos on TikTok on my personal page at Matta of Fact. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns about this week's episode, or what you would like to hear next, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the Instagram or shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to enter the giveaway if you would like to get your own tutor planner for 2023. We can be twins. who are hopefully prepared for anything and kicking our procrastination habits. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for listening. Until the next one.